0: Good morning. Well, I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Good to be together as a church family this morning, both online and in the why, Always fun to be together as a church family as we continue to rebuild the habits of worshiping together and serving together on Sundays. Whether you are cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. As uh, T.J. pointed out well, we, we are about to move into the Establish in Love season to secure commitments for building a building on South Main Street in Davidson. There will be two events, two main events. There's the 822 event Sunday. It's like right after church. We'll feed you. All that. It's on the land. Please dress comfortably. If you cannot make it to 822, there's one on the next Sunday, 829, which is a Facebook Live event. Again, please dress comfortably, uh, but you can sit at your house. Either one would let you learn more about the building than what we'll share on, be able to share on Sunday mornings, ask questions, all that kind of stuff. But we're getting excited and hope you'll make, make your plans. The other thing I want to hit real fast before the sermon is just to uh, reiterate that we continue to guard the spiritual, the emotional, the physical well-being of the congregation. And so we are very uh, clued in and locked into this uh, Delta variant situation. So we're considering if there's things we need to change, big or small, uh, in, in how we've been doing things the last few months that would accommodate that we also know that folks have different levels of comfort, different convictions around this. We will do our best to honor and be sympathetic to all of those. You can also appreciate that with a lot of convictions and levels of comfort, there's really no way to thread that needle perfectly, but we will continue to do, do our best in that. You, one of the things pandemics have historically done is they tear at the relational fabric of society. And so I'm so thankful for our church family, How over these last 18 months with it, in some ways have been very fatiguing over these last 18 months. We have remained unified. We have stayed on mission and in this together. I know that will continue even as we experience this, this new little blip. If you're not aware, the number of um, new cases in the state three weeks ago was around 400 a day. Now it's around 2,400 a day. And um, there were around 400 people hospitalized with COVID in the state three weeks ago and now that's around 1200 people so the hospitalizations are not keeping up with the new caseload which is really good but we just want to be attentive to to these things All right. well if you don't know much about me I went to Davidson College there I studied math and religion because why not Um, but my third most classes I took were in the subject of history because I just like history. I actually love history, right? Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Of course, those who do study history are doomed to memorize a lot of dates. And that's like the weird part about history, right? You can either think of it as a series of facts or as the development of themes. You can either see it as a whole lot of events or as the thread that holds all those events together. So what is history? Is history facts or is it themes? Is it events or is it the threads that hold the events together? Of course, it is both. It is both. But sometimes if we, we lose the themes and we lose the threads, if all we focus on are the facts, if all we focus on are the events. History is both facts and events and themes and threads. And the same thing is true about the Bible. In fact, the same thing is true about our lives. There are facts and events. And there are themes and threads. And if we only focus on the facts and events, we may actually miss what God is actually doing. We may miss the overarching story, which gets us back to our year-long series of sermons that we are calling The Story with a capital S. We're trying to look at the big picture of the Bible, that from the beginning of time, God has been writing a great story in this world and invites you and me to find our place in it. We're trying to make the Bible a little less big, a little less intimidating. And so on our website, we have a reading plan. We have a family reading plan. We have videos you can watch. These are all optional activities that would let you take your understanding of the Bible just a little bit further. Today, we start volume six. This is a year-long series, all 2021. And we're on volume six of eight. We're making the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The Old Testament is the first half of the Bible, but it's more than half. It takes up about two-thirds of the pages. I guess if it's on your phone, you wouldn't necessarily know this, but if you get a physical Bible, the first half of the Bible is about the first two-thirds. It's called the Old Testament. It predates the earthly ministry of Jesus. And then the second half, what we're moving to today, is called the New Testament. That's right before, during, and right after the earthly ministry of Jesus. It's a a historical span of a little less than 100 years in which the world was fundamentally changed. If this is your first Sunday with us, let me summarize the Old Testament offensively quickly. At least offensively to me, because I just preached, myself, Holly, Gray, uh, Terrell, we just preached seven months' worth, and I'm going to sum it up here in about two minutes. In the beginning, God created the world. God created humanity in his own image, but humanity, you and I have not chosen a close relationship with God. Instead, we have rebelled against God in response to our rebellion and the ancient serpent that lured us into it. God made this promise in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God says to this ancient serpent who lured humanity into rebelling against God, who lured each of us into rebelling against God, God says that someone, the offspring of a woman, someone is going to come and that that someone will be wounded by evil, but at the same time will crush evil. A wounded champion is coming to undo the curse that you and I have brought on ourselves and on this world when we left God's path to follow our own way. God goes on to establish an everlasting covenant, an eternal promise with Abraham and Sarah, telling them in Genesis 17, I will establish a covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God promises that he's gonna bless all the peoples of the world through the family of Abraham and Sarah. And then as the generations go on, that family grows so big it becomes a people, the Hebrew people. They get enslaved in Egypt, but God delivers them miraculously. He gives them the 10 commandments. He leads them to the promised land so that they may shine hope to a hurting world. In the promised land, the family that became a people unifies into a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Their most exceptional king is named King David. He receives this promise in 2 Samuel 7. God tells him that your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You don't need to be an English major to get the point. One word God keeps repeating is forever. Forever. So God says to David, out of your house, out of your offspring, I'm going to create an eternal kingdom with an eternal throne. It's going to last forever. So David or his successor or his successor or his successor, somebody in this family is going to inaugurate an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. At this point, we don't really know what that is, but it sounds great. It sounds like a new kind of life, like a a life that's everlasting, a life that has abundance under a permanent king. This permanent king comes to be called the Messiah or the Christ. Those words mean the same thing. The Messiah or the Christ is this permanent king, and it means the anointed one. At that day and time, you would anoint a king with oil to symbolize that they were the king. And so this person is the anointed one, the king, the Messiah, the Christ. The people are waiting for him to come and inaugurate his eternal kingdom. But then what happens is that the kingdom of Israel, are you still with me? This is like towards the end. The kingdom of Israel divides into two kingdoms. They get taken into exile by Assyria, then by Babylon, then by Persia. But even in those hard times, the promise of the Messiah remains. Persia eventually lets the exiles come back to the promised land, they rebuild Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, they have high hopes for the future, and then comes a period of about 400 years where God seems oddly quiet. The people rely on the Bible, they rely on the hope of the Messiah to carry them through. And all of this gets us to the passage that Sadie read for us earlier, the very first words of the New Testament. Last week, we studied the very last words of the Old Testament, which were a little fiery. And then this week, we study the very first words of the New Testament. In the New Testament, it begins with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each of which talk about Jesus from a different person's perspective. But the first one is Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Can we give Sadie some props for reading Matthew chapter 1? I'm sure glad you weren't called on to read today, right? The New Testament begins with, of all things, a list of names. Just some facts and events. Boring. Or is it? Does the New Testament start with facts and events? Or does it start with themes and threads? Because once you know a little bit about the Old Testament, the list at the beginning of the New Testament might make you tear up a little bit because you'll realize there's room in God's family for you. The New Testament begins with this verse. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then what Matthew does is he lists out 42 generations, we didn't make Sadie read all 42 generations, 42 generations to take us from Abraham and Sarah to the birth of a child named Jesus. And we learn that he's named Jesus because, this is a little after the passage for this morning, he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. He will save his people from their sins. So the list of names, the genealogy that starts the New Testament, is a deep reminder that God knows what He's doing, that God is doing something in this world, that God is doing something in your life, and God knows what He's doing. Matthew chapter 1 gives us some clarity into what God is doing in the world, but it also gives us clarity about what God is doing in each and every one of our lives, no matter where we are on the spiritual spectrum. It shows that God is doing something in what we often call our God stories, the stories that God is writing in each and every one of our lives. I've been thinking a lot about God's stories recently, because as TJ said, in two weeks we turn 10 years old as a church, and I've been thinking a lot about what we've seen God do in people's lives, God do in your lives, God do in my life over the last 10 years. And then we also, on that 10th anniversary, 10th birthday Sunday, kick off the Established in Love campaign, trying to secure commitments to build a church building on South Main Street in Davidson. And I will say this an offensive number of times the next two months. A church building is not the Holy Grail. A church building is our prayer that by God's grace, the the prayer of a church building is that by God's grace, it'll be a tool for long-term, vibrant ministry in the community. So that generations from now, we will still be hearing the same sort of God stories that we've been hearing over these first 10 years. So the church building in many ways is simply our prayer that these first 10 years have been the beginning, but God has so much more left to do. God does amazing things in people's lives. God does amazing things in our lives as we are a church family together. And by God's grace, may that continue for generations. I've been thinking a lot about God's stories lately. So with whatever time I have left, I don't know, the summary took a little longer than two minutes. It was a preacher two minutes, I apologize. I want to point out five themes, themes that we see in the genealogy of Jesus to begin the New Testament, and I want to share these in hopes that we will better understand God's story, the story God is writing in this world, in the Bible, but also the story God is writing in each and every one of our lives. So here we go. When God is the author, number one, number one, number, 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 number one. When God is the author, mountaintops matter. Mountaintops matter. Verse 10 says, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, Again, if this is your first time with us, you don't need to remember this, but a few, like about a month or two ago, we were in the middle of the Old Testament, and there were a whole lot of kings in the middle of the Old Testament, and most of them are horrible. And the Bible actually says that. This guy was horrible. So it's, That's a loose translation. But not all of them were horrible. In fact, there were some shining stars in there, and some of the shining stars were Hezekiah and Josiah. Their reigns were real mountaintop moments in what was otherwise a pretty tough time. So Jesus' genealogy contains some real mountaintop figures. The kind of folks you might expect. In our lives, in our God stories, God often uses mountaintop moments to point us in a new direction. It may be a dramatic conversion, a conference, a retreat, sobriety. Baptism, confirmation of baptism, a wedding, the birth of a child, there are mountaintop experiences that we have. Now, everything can't be a mountaintop, and we can get stuck in the trap of always looking for the latest and greatest mountaintop experience. But nonetheless, mountaintops do matter. Those experiences that you've had, they matter. The way that God uses those mountaintop experiences to shape you, it matters when God is the author, the mountaintops matter. Number two, when God is the author, the subtle can be shaping. When God is the author, the subtle can be shaping. Verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So Jesus' genealogy begins with Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, no surprises there. If you go back to the very, very first book of the Bible, this is like in January, we were talking about that. Maybe February, a little bit. Jacob has a dozen sons. The Bible spends 13 chapters talking about one of those sons named Joseph. And so the genealogy of Jesus will go, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? Wrong. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah? There ain't no 13 chapters in the Bible on Judah. There's one chapter, and it is fit for the Mari show. D- is that even a show still? Whatever the trashy daytime show is, is where Judah's chapter belongs. So Jesus' genealogy shows us there's not just the power of the obvious, not just the power of mountaintops, there's also a power in the understated. There's also a power in the subtle, because in our lives, in our God stories, God does some of His best work through the subtle, through the understated, through Judah, not Joseph. Because as you and I nurture relationships, day in and day out, as we take time to serve one another, even if it's not glamorous, even if we don't totally feel like doing it as we're driving there, as we do the little things over and over and over again, like worship, like community, like serving, like giving, like caring for a neighbor, like praying for an enemy, like reading your devotional, like persevering in a tough situation, asking God for the patience to not yell at your kids. Hypothetical example. God shapes us through the power of the subtle, little things done over and over and over again. When God is the author, number three... When God is the author, a detour might be the way forward. When God is the author, a detour might be the way forward. Verse 17, And thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. A detour might be the way forward. So, Matthew uses four major markers to describe the journey from Abraham to Jesus the Messiah. He says there's Abraham, there's David, there's the exile, there's Jesus. One of these things is not like the other. Abraham got a promise, David got a promise, Jesus was the promise. The exile was a heartbreaking experience that made it look like God had given up on his promise. That God had taken an axe to all his plans and purposes in the world. And yet, though not obvious at the time, God was still working out his plan in the exile. God's strong and steady hand kept pushing the story forward. The exile seemed like a detour, like we were headed in the wrong direction. But God repurposed it. God made it the way forward. Jesus' genealogy contains detours that actually led somewhere beautiful. In our lives, in our God stories, in the story that God is writing in our lives, how often do we encounter detours? How often does a seemingly open road suddenly dead end and we have to reroute, even if it's not where we wanted to go? Does it ever seem like God has taken an axe to all that he's done in your life up until this point? Remember, your story is not over. The detour is real, the detour is hard, and yet God's strong and steady hand guides you forward. The detour may become a marker Of God's faithfulness to you. Can you imagine the people being taken into exile? Would they have ever thought that the New Testament would begin by saying, four big highlights we want you to know, Abraham, David, exile, Jesus. When they were watching the temple be burned to the ground, the lives they knew they were being ripped apart from them, would they have ever seen that The detour became a marker of God's faithfulness, given enough time. When God is the author, number four, we're moving along. Number four, redemption is real. When God is the author, number four, redemption is real. Verse six, Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now when you put together a resume, what do you do? You emphasize your strengths. You don't say things like, harpooned a promising project through poor communication. Though that is a good snappy action verb. When royalty talks about their heritage, what do they do? They emphasize their strength. They emphasize the purity of their line. So what does Jesus do? Jesus actually emphasizes the taintedness of his heritage, which is a clue about the kind of kingdom he's coming to establish and who he's going to welcome into his kingdom. Jesus' genealogy includes Solomon, whose father was David and whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew does not name her. Her name is Bathsheba. He instead describes her in a way that just reminds us of one of the most awful scenes of the whole Bible. Where King David used his power to have an affair with Bathsheba. When he could not cover it up, he had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. This whole affair did irreparable harm to David's family and to the kingdom of Israel. And yet, Jesus' genealogy runs right through this adulterous union. That's not to excuse the inexcusable, but it is there to remind us of the power of God's grace. That God can still call something wrong and then bring redemption for the people involved. God can still call something wrong, still allow people to experience the the consequences of their actions, and bring redemption for the people involved. Where have you seen redemption in your story? Where have you seen redemption in what God is doing in your life? Where a bad situation, a sordid situation, maybe even a sinful situation was overwhelmed by God's grace? redeemed by God's truth, transformed by God's love. Not to excuse the inexcusable, not to minimize the pain that you feel or that other people may feel, but maybe God works through it all. Maybe God works through it all to get you to a place where what was once your greatest misery can become your greatest ministry. When God is the author, redemption is real. And then when God is the author, number five, whew, a lot of points today, a lot of points today. I will make it up to you in my next sermon. It'll be pointless. I don't know, man, it may be, you never know. Number five, when God is the author, number five, number five, finally, finally, number five, when God is the author, promises are kept, and Jesus is at the center. Matthew 1.1, the first verse of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first verse of the New Testament seems very boring. But why does Matthew emphasize Jesus is a descendant of Abraham? Why does he emphasize Jesus is a descendant of David? Because the promises God made in the Old Testament, that God would bless all peoples through the family of Abraham and Sarah, that one of David's descendants would inaugurate an eternal kingdom with an eternal throne. The New Testament begins with what seems like a very boring sentence and may actually be the boldest sentence in the whole Bible. Everything you've just read in the Old Testament, this is what they're saying, everything you just read in the Old Testament has found its fulfillment in this man named Jesus. That is a very bold statement. And so Matthew continues, not only has everything in the Old Testament found its fulfillment in Jesus, but I, Matthew, and so many other people have found our fulfillment in this man named Jesus. God made a promise, the promise has been kept. Now, in our lives, we need to be careful to distinguish between our preferences and God's promises. God does not always give us everything we want, but God is always faithful to His promises. And the Bible contains all kinds of promises for us and for our futures. And we would do well to name the places in our lives that we have seen God be faithful to his promises. Maybe even the fact that he got you here into this worship service today. Physically, online, that God got you here today. When we name the places in our lives where we've seen God be faithful, it reminds us that God can be trusted, that God is trustworthy. God is worthy to be trusted, which is the whole point of the Bible, the whole point of the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is trustworthy. God made a promise. The promise has been kept. The wounded champion has crushed the rebellion against God. The descendant of Abraham has come to bless all the peoples of the world. The heir of David has come to establish an eternal king with an everlasting throne. Out of the stump of exile has grown the most transformative, diverse movement in all of human history. And it revolves around this man named Jesus. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus is at the center of God's plan just as he desires to be at the center of your life. He is fully God and fully human. God wrapped himself up in humanity and moved into the neighborhood to make good on the promises he had made. He was born to the Virgin Mary, raised by her and her husband Joseph. He gathered followers who believed that he was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was the hinge point of all history. He was at the center of God's plan, and it took them years to figure out what it would mean for him to be at the center of their lives as well. The New Testament begins with this bold declaration. We are about to introduce you to Jesus. We believe He is the fulfillment of God's promises and the fulfillment of your life. And then the New Testament will go on to devote four whole books to the life of Jesus. They didn't just get together and say, let's just make one kind of the master account. Jesus is so complex, so fascinating that they let four different people chronicle what they knew about Jesus. It's almost like trying to take a picture of a… if all you had were two-dimensional photos, you're trying to take a picture of a three-dimensional object. You have to take multiple pictures from different angles to really understand what you're looking at. If God wrapped himself in humanity and moved into the neighborhood, you would need multiple perspectives to understand what you were really looking at. What about you? And what about your story? The question I'd ask you to just reflect on a little bit today is this one. How have you seen God shaping your life through mountaintops, subtle habits, detours, redemption, promises kept, and ultimately Jesus? How have you seen God shaping your life through mountaintops, subtle habits, detours, redemption, promises kept, Ultimately, Jesus. I've been thinking a lot about God's stories lately. And I hope you will join me in thinking about your own God's story. What have you seen God doing in your life? And what role, if any, has this here fine church gotten to play in that? Whatever we call ourselves, we call ourselves Lake Forest Davidson, Lake Forest Church Davidson. By year's end, we will take a step of maturity, become our own local church called Story Hill Church. Whatever we call ourselves, what role has this little church gotten to play in your life? How has God used your time here? What has God been doing in your life? I hope you might just take some time to reflect on that. To marinate in how good God has been to you. To marinate in some of the work God still has left to do in you. To join me in praying that by God's grace, we will continue to see impact for generations to come. So there were a lot of points, so let me just make sure nobody got lost in all that, and just say, if you only take one thing away today, take this away from the first chapter of the New Testament. There is room in Jesus' family for you. There's no detour too far, there's no stain too deep. Jesus stands ready to welcome you. Redemption is real. And don't wait until you're better. Don't wait until you're all cleaned up, or you'll never come at all. Matthew says, and you can say, as I have said, as as some here have said, as others here are considering, you can say, as Matthew said, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan and the fulfillment of my life. Let's pray together. Let me just give you just a quiet moment, a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, how often my life gets overcome by the urgent, but not always by the important. Lord, for many of us, carving out this hour was a challenge. The to do list this afternoon is long, the next week is full. and yet you call us to reflection, to reflect on what you have been doing in this world and what you have been doing in our lives. So Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that we will even now find time, think of time, carve out time to just sit with you and reflect on what you've been up to in each of our lives. How you have been shaping us and how much shaping there is left to do. But Lord, I pray the road ahead will not blind us to what you've done on the road behind. And Lord, perhaps for some of us our takeaway is just far more simple than that. A deep, sense that there is room in God's family for me. And that Jesus stands ready to welcome you as a citizen of His eternal kingdom, a member of God's eternal family. No detour wrong enough. No stain deep enough. With Jesus, redemption is real. And so, Lord, I pray that in this song that comes in our reflection time with you this week, whenever we make it time for that, that we would open up our hearts to you and ask you to change us from the inside out. We pray all that in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.